Let's go to the Word of God tonight. Uh, come with me, please, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. And we're going to continue in this uh, series of studies. I think this is part 9 tonight on titled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And we've been looking at all kinds of aspects of prayer. Uh, we did that morning meeting. And also, uh, uh, last week, we talked much about prayer and fasting. And so, we want to just pick up on, on some of the things that we've been saying. We're not finished with this study yet, uh, but just another angle tonight. So, Matthew chapter 5, and just one verse here, verse 6. These are the words of Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. This is the longest recorded discourse of Jesus in the New Testament. And Matthew writes this uh, from the aspect of Christ being the King. And this is why someone has called this the manifesto uh, of the King. And it really is a, a revelation of the heart and mind of Jesus, the King. And it describes the character and the conduct uh, of those who belong to the kingdom, the citizens of the kingdom, and how we're to live and how our lives are to shape up in Christ's likeness. And the message begins with the Beatitudes. And we know that the word Beatitude uh, comes from the Latin word beatus, which means blessed. And the word blessed is mentioned nine times in these nine verses. And so before we look at this verse, I think it would be good if we would just remind ourselves of what the word blessed actually means. Now various uh, translators describe and define this word as happy, or to be envied, or to be spiritually prosperous, or to be greatly rewarded, or to be satisfied, or to be with good favor, and much, much more. Now, blessed was a familiar word to Jesus' audience. They'd heard this word many, many times before. But they only ever heard it in their own context. And Jesus takes it out of the context that they understood it. And so he gives new meaning to an old word. And this is how they understood the word blessed. It was a word that they understood related to the Greek gods. Or to those who had died and had gone into the next life. Where they thought they would be blessed. They would be uh, in bliss, that they would have complete happiness, that they would experience divine joy. And of course, obviously, then only those who were great gods or those who had passed into the afterlife could possibly experience this level of blessedness, this level of divine joy and completeness and happiness and fulfillment. Of course, it was unattainable to mere mortals. But that didn't stop them trying, of course. Three great cultures in Jesus' day were the Greek and the Roman and the Hebrew cultures. They all converged in 
tiny little Israel. And of course, the Greeks sought this blessedness that seemed to be unattainable to them, but they sought it through knowledge and enlightenment. Much like, I suppose, people who's into New Age today, or the esoteric uh, religions, you know, where uh, they, they feel that if they could just get a higher revelation and more knowledge, they would enter into this kind of a blissful state of enlightenment. And the Romans, they thought they could find it through power and through wealth. And of course, that is uh, still prevalent today, isn't it? There's people who believe that you can only be truly happy, fully happy, completely happy, if you climb to the top of the business tree, the totem pole in life. If you make it in your profession right to the very top, or if you're a sports personality, or a film star, or an actor, or, or an athlete, or whatever, if you get to that position of power and wealth, then you've made it. That's happiness. But we all know that very few people, when they get to that place, find that it's a happy place they thought it was going to be. The Jews, they thought they could find this through strict adherence to laws and to rituals. And that complies with, with those who would, who through religion and who through adherence to particular rules and dynamics within religion, if they could do that and if they could do it perfectly well and if they could attain to this certain thing, then they would be truly happy. And we know that over the years and centuries that people sought to do that. Some would cloister themselves away and hide themselves away in the desert places or in the mountains or within the monasteries or wherever to try to find this perfect place of perfect bliss that always continually eluded them. But Jesus used this word in a different way. He came to bring a a quality of blessedness and of peace and of spiritual prosperity that was not dependent upon happenings. Because most of we, what we call happiness is dependent on happenings. If the right thing happens, then we're happy. And if it doesn't happen, we're unhappy. So we, we tend to be tied into happenings. Well, Jesus brought a blessedness. This is what he talks about in the Beatitudes. And this blessedness is something that is internal, not external. It's not really dependent on the outside circumstances. It's depending in, on that which is within us. It's this wellspring of life that is within us that wells up within us. And this is why often that, that Christians who go through uh, tremendously difficult times and they come through it and they make it and they do it well and they're victorious... And you wonder, how in the world did they ever get through that? Because of the external circumstances of their life, but yet the internal circumstances, what was inside, got them through all the stuff that was on the outside that was coming against them. And so for those who trust in the Lord and obey His Word, there is a level, a dimension of blessedness that is for mere mortals, that is for people just like you and like me. Now the word blessed in the Greek language is an interesting word. It's makarios. 
Anybody ever go to Cyprus on your holidays? A few of you. Beautiful place, isn't it? So I am told. I haven't been there yet. But it used to be called the Isle of Macarios. In fact, some of you may be old enough to remember there used to be an old Archbishop Macarios of Cyprus. And the word Macarios has that same feeling. It was the envy of all of its neighboring countries. It had within its own borders all that it needed to exist and to prosper. It didn't need to import anything. All of its foodstuff, everything that it needed was within its island. It was very, very self-contained. And that is the idea. It had its own internal prosperity. Now that's the, the picture that Christ wants us to see regarding ourselves, that we are blessed internally, spiritually, that all that we need comes from Him and it's lodged and deposited within our spirits, that we're not dependent on the outside circumstances. This is why the Apostle Paul, when the Apostle Paul was thrown into prison, when he was weep, when he was weep, uh, when he was whipped and he was beaten and he was thrown into jail, he could still rejoice when Paul and Silas was thrown into that prison. What did they do? At midnight they sang praises unto God. They weren't dependent on the outside circumstances. No, God, no wonder God shook the very building they were in. And this is what Christ is trying to get through to us. To have this internal blessedness, this favor, this completeness, this divine joy, to have it within our hearts. Now this fourth beatitude then, that gets right to the heart of all of our spiritual ills, it's kind of like a spiritual thermometer. A thermometer tests the temperature, and this tests our spiritual temperature. Go to the doctor, he tells you to open your mouth, and he sticks that thermometer. Well, they've got all their things today, but that's what they used to do. Stick it in your mouth. They want to see what it's like. And stick it in your ear now, don't they? They want to see what the inside heat's like, what your temperature's like on the inside. Well, this tells us our spiritual temperature. Blessed are those who hunger and who thirst after righteousness. Not. God has put within all of us certain appetites, drives, longings, yearnings, wants, needs, call it what you will. And all of us have them. Physical appetites. We talked about that when we talked about prayer and fasting. And if anybody's been prayer and fasting over this past couple of weeks, you know what I'm talking about. Suddenly you realize, hey, I've got an appetite, I want to eat. But then there's other kinds of appetites, desires, longings, emotional. The need to be loved, appreciated, wanted, noticed even. All of that God has put within our lives. And it's a longing, it's a yearning. And then of course there are mental appetites, if I could use that term. The, the desire to have knowledge, to know more. A, a child is not very old before it starts asking you the most profound questions. You ever notice that? 
And it wants to know how everything works. Daddy, how does that work? And you're almost dreading what the next question is going to be. Because it's going to be something you just cannot answer. Because they're curious. It's an appetite. It's there. God put it there in order for us to find things out and to know stuff and to, and to become more knowledgeable in a lot of areas. We want to know how things work. Well, some of us do anyway. When I was a wee boy, I was fascinated by how things worked. I took things apart. Never could put them together again, but I took them apart. I had to find out why that worked. I never could get the knowledge to make it work again after that, but that's just the way it was. And so, above and beyond all of those appetites, the most important one is a spiritual appetite. Everybody is born with a spiritual appetite. Because the Bible says that God has put eternity in our hearts. We're curious. We want to know more than just this life. Somebody, I don't care who, the most desperate atheist in the world today, at some point, sometime, somewhere, they ask the question, why am I here? Who really am I? And the reason why they did, because God has put eternity in our hearts. Even in those tribes in the Amazon jungle, they believe there's something more than just themselves. They've got that knowledge. Now, the trouble with that is that everybody then is looking for something to fulfill that particular appetite and many people doesn't even know they've got it. They don't even know they've got it. Some even know it and deny it. And so consequently they're looking to fulfill that spiritual longing with something else in its place and it will never ever work. It will never ever satisfy. And they keep going from one thing to the next to try to find something that's going to scratch where they itch. I was thinking the other day, there was an itch in my back. Why is an itch in your back always in the place where you can't reach it? You try your hand up this way, you try it down that way, and it's always just right somewhere where your arm's not long enough and it's too short, and you have to get a stick or a pencil or a ruler or something, get it down the collar of your neck. Why is that? Well, there's a spiritual itch in people's lives and they're trying to scratch it and they can't find something to scratch it with. They're looking in all the wrong places. Now, the Bible does say something about this in the first chapter of Romans. Apostle Paul in verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, note this, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness who deny the truth, who put the truth down, who suppress it. You can't ever fully suppress it. It's always going to be there. Anthony Flew, probably the most famous atheist in Britain, he man's about 90 today. And after all of those, almost a lifetime of denying God's existence has finally come round to the profound understanding that in all of his dealings in science and looking into stuff, he said there must be a designer. Now, he's not saying it's the Christian God. 
He's calling it a higher power, a higher intelligence. But he's recognized there's something outside of herself. It couldn't have just happened. It caused a sensation within his world. Because here was their, well, he was a pinup boy for them for years, the way Dawkins is today. But now at this grand old age, having studied a lifetime, he's come to the conclusion there must be a quote-unquote God of some description, somehow, somewhere. Because this just could not have happened. He's finally owned it. If he could just go the extra mile now and find Christ, that would be brilliant, wouldn't it? But at least he's owning up that there's something beyond us. But you see, men try to suppress this because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead. Why do you think God made creation such a wonderful, glorious, majestic thing that it is? Why do you think that? So that men would look at it and say, this just could not have happened. That's what it's designed to do in men's hearts. But of course, many have said that and then suppressed that. So, well, no, no, well, science must be right. So I'll dismiss that thought. Because once I enter just God to it, then that, that goes to a whole different level of responsibility. Because once you admit there's a God, well, you've got to do something about that, haven't you? And so we'll leave that at that because that's a whole other subject. Now, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Interesting choice of words, don't you think? I mean, if you were doing a, you know, one of those games of word association, and somebody said to you, right, tell me the first words that come out of your mind when I say blessed... I guarantee not one in ten million would think hungering and thirsting. Just would never even put that together, would you? Doesn't sound very blessed, that, hungering and thirsting. Now think about this. Jesus is saying this after having just come off a 40-day fast. He knows what hunger is like. He knows what thirst is like out in that desert where he was, that wilderness. So Jesus uses those two terms. I mean, hungering and thirsting after 40 days in the wilderness, he, he felt that keenly, keenly. I mean, he, he knew what that really felt as a human being. And so he introduces this into a spiritual dimension. Hungering and thirsting. Not a word that would spring to mind when you talk about blessedness, but it's a word that Jesus used. And Jesus here is saying that the overwhelming desire that we have for our bellies to be filled with food and our thirst to be slick with water, he says that should be the desire for spiritual things. And I have to admit that we can go through a long period in our Christian life and not feel that keen sense of hunger and thirst and desire for spiritual things. And this is why at the very beginning of this year, this is why we have honed in on messages like this, about prayer and about fasting, hungering and thirsting, to, to, to get us back to the place. Do you remember when you were a young Christian and you were full of zeal and fire? 
What happened to that? So easy to get blasé and settle down and ho-hum and, well, church this week and, well, if I don't go, I'll go next week. And, yeah, prayer meeting, I don't know, it's hard work. I don't think I'll bother. Reading the Bible, well, it's a bit hard to understand. I think I'll give it a Bible this week. And before you know it, there's no hunger, there's no thirsting after righteousness. Before you know it, you're going through the motions, but no passion, no desire. And this is what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus saying that those natural desires and drives within us that he's given us in a physical, material way, he says, get that spiritually into your heart. Get that desire into your heart. Here's what the psalmist said in Psalm 84 and 2. He says, my soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cries out for the living God. Here's a man living under the Old Testament dispensation with all of its laws and rituals and rules and regulations. And yet here he was with a passion and a drive and a desire for to seek God. No wonder all of those songs come out of his spirit. No wonder all of those psalms begin to rise up. No wonder all of those prayers that he prayed in the psalms had all come out of that passion and that desire. Those who write Christian songs, if you talk to them, many times, I remember one time reading about Twyla Paris. Twyla Paris has been writing Christian songs since, I don't know, for 20, 30 years perhaps. I remember doing a, reading an interview, and, and the interviewer said, how do you get these songs? Well, she says, it's very simple. She says, I sit down at my piano, and I begin to worship the Lord. And she says, I don't do it to write a song, I do it to worship the Lord. And she says, almost all of my songs is coming out of me worshiping my Lord just because I love him and I want to worship him. And when I do that, inevitably and invariably, a song will begin to come out. No wonder she's written some great songs over the years because it's come out of a heart of worship and praise. And you see, the Holy Spirit will take that and he'll use that. Now, In Deuteronomy 6 and 5, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. What are you hungry for? What are you thirsting for? A hungry person has only got one thing in mind, food. <laughs> And the hungrier are, and you know, David Lappin. <laughs> I've seen your sister digging you in the ribs. You know that if you go, well, 8, 10, 12 hours, and you haven't eaten anything, and you've worked hard all day, you know you can't wait to go home because your mother's going to have a big plate of spuds ready for you and a big steak probably ready for you too. You're just, you can smell it. You salivate thinking about it. You're focused on it. You hardly think of anything else. Some of you, when you go on a diet, you never thought about food as much in your whole life as when you go on a diet. Sure you don't. It's all you think about. If you're on steroids, sorry, but food is the only thing in your mind, isn't it? I know a brother one time he was on steroids, <laughs> and he got up in the morning, and he was thinking what he was going to eat that night. I'll tell you who that is. 
They're in this room tonight. <laughs> but that's what steroids do, isn't it? It gives you that hunger, that desire just to eat. Well, here's the thing. What are you thirsting for? What is your desire? Some people are spiritually anorexic. They will live on the meagerest, skinniest diet they can find spiritually. Everything's skimmed. Everything's cut back. And God doesn't want to live that way spiritually. He wants us to have a spiritual appetite that's hungry for Him and hungry for His Word and hungry for the house of God and hungry for worship and hungry for spiritual things. You know, a good appetite is a sign of health, isn't it? Mostly when you take sick, your appetite's the first thing to go, isn't it? You just can't be bothered. You know, if you really, really take sick, you lose weight fast, don't you? Because you just don't feel like eating anything. Your appetite just goes. And when your appetite starts to come back, that's usually a good sign, isn't it? As soon as you start to get your appetite back, you're thinking, well, hey, I'm getting better now. My appetite's coming back. Well, the same applies spiritually. When you start to get your spiritual appetite back again, you start to get that hunger in your heart and you want to be filled. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. This is both a promise and a paradox. A promise and a paradox. The promise is that you shall be filled. But the paradox is that the more you're filled with what you're hungering after spiritually, the more of it you want. Now, when you, when you eat a meal at night, that's, that's not the last meal you're going to eat. Sure, it's not. It fills you up the time. You say, I'm stuffed. I couldn't eat another bite. Take that dessert away, Sally. I couldn't face it. <laughs> now, you never say that, do you? No matter how full you are, there's always room for dessert, isn't there? Always. But you know you're going to eat again. You know, that, you know that at some point you're going to hunger again for the same thing. You need that food. Well, spirit is the same. Christ wants to fill us till we feel full. But you know later on you're going to be hungry again. You're going to desire more of that. That's giving you a taste for it. And once you get a taste for spiritual things, you want more spiritual things. So it's a promise and it's a paradox all wrapped into one, isn't it? In Psalm 107. Just a couple of little scriptures just to look at. Psalm 107. I can find it quickly. Verse 9. For he satisfies the longing soul and he fills the hungry soul with goodness. That's a good scripture, isn't it? Are you longing? Are you hungry? There's the promise. He satisfies the longing soul. He fills the hungry soul with goodness. Isaiah 55. First couple of verses. Ho, everyone who thirsts, 
Come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your wages for that that does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight in its abundance. You are going to feed on something. You're going to hunger and thirst for something because that's the way God has wired you. That's just the way you are. It may be a hobby, it may be a sport, it may be TV. You may watch 20 hours of TV a night, I don't know. But you're going to hunger for something. Whatever your passion is, you'll hunger for that. Why not discipline yourself, train yourself to hunger after righteousness? And it is a discipline that fights against, your whole flesh will fight against it. This is why prayer is such a battle, because your flesh doesn't want to do it. But if you persevere, if you discipline yourself, you'll find that you'll want to hunger and thirst, and you'll find that God will satisfy the longing soul. Look, chapter 1. This is the song of Mary. Mary's Magnificat. We'll not read it all. But in verse 53, she cries out, He has filled the hungry with good things. You could take that literally, physically, materially. But I think she's meaning much more than that. He has filled the hungry with good things. In John chapter 4, In verse 14, Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. Well, verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. Whoever drinks of this water, this natural water, shall thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst. You're not going to thirst for natural things, the carnal things that we thirst for, because you'll have a new thirst for the things of God that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Glory to God. Now, chapter 6 of Luke. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger he who believes in me shall never thirst. He's the bread of life, and he is the water of life. But then there is the paradox, isn't there? Because the more you feast of him, the more you get of his heavenly bread, the heavenly manna, and the more you drink of the living water, the more of that you will want, the more of that you will desire. Now, so we start to wind up. This beatitude stresses three, three things for us tonight. First of all, the priority of purpose. The priority of purpose. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now we have a right standing with God. But all of that all that that entails, that right standing with God, that righteousness of God we have in Christ. 
all that flows from that, that should be our priority of purpose. That should be our goal. And Philippians chapter 3, think about it. After 30 years of following Christ, after 30 years of being the greatest missionary evangelist who ever lived on the face of the earth, after 30 years of having got revelation directly from Christ himself, after 30 years of turning the church upside down and spreading missions to the ends of the earth, Paul says that I might know him. <laughs> Can you imagine it? That I might know him. That I might win him. He's not satisfied. There's more to come. Nobody knew more about Christ than Paul, I venture to say tonight. But he still believed there was more to know. And so after 30 years, he's still crying out, I want to be found in Christ. I want to know Christ. I want to win Christ. That was his passion. That was his hunger. That was his thirst in life. Would to God that that was mine and yours to the degree that he had it. In Psalm 86, verse 11, it talks about the danger of a divided heart. Psalmist says, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart. The danger of a divided heart. And that's our problem, isn't it? Our heart gets splintered and divided and fragmented into all kinds of stuff. And we forget the main thing. The main thing as believers is to be a follower of Christ and everything else. That means our jobs, our careers, our relationships, everything else is to be subservient to that and is to fit into that, not he fits into our stuff. What is your priority of purpose? Paul says, this one thing I do. Can we be focused and then there is the persistence of pursuit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Did you ever see those bloodhounds? You see it in movies and television detective programs. and They give them a whiff of a shirt or a belt or something and off it goes. gets one whiff of that boy it's off it follows the trail and it will go through hell and high water to get that person it follows after it's, it's determined it's dedicated nothing's going to stop it well this is the way that God wants us to be like in Philippians chapter 3 verse 12 For those of you who are regulars, forgive me for repeating this, but it's, it's apropos to what I'm saying tonight, and it's important. In Philippians 3, verse 12, Paul says this about himself. Not that I have already attained, or I'm already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended or have laid hold of everything. 
But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing on to the goal ahead. Paul is saying, Christ has apprehended me for a purpose in this life, but I haven't fully, totally apprehended all that he's apprehended me for. I haven't fully grasped all that he's grasped me for. That's what he's saying. I haven't just quite got there yet. But he uses the term, I press on. It's an interesting word he uses. Dioko. Dioko. And dioko is a, is a pressing on. It's a determination. I mean, it's really fervently pressing and going after with all of your heart and with all of your soul until you get it. It's interesting he uses this word in another place. In Galatians chapter 1. In verse 13, when he's given his testimony, he says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how that I persecuted the church of God beyond measure. And he uses the same word, dioko. How I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And you know how he went even into Damascus and he had that Damascus Road experience. That was how passionate he was about persecuting the church. He says it was dioko. He said it was, I was unstoppable. I had a drive in me. I had a passion. I had an energy to persecute the church. But now that same passion and drive and energy, he says it's to build the church. Same way. And this is what Christ wants for us. And sometimes those who have come out of the world who had a real passion for evil or wickedness or carnality or whatever and they get saved, sometimes that same drive only it's consecrated and sanctified to go God's way. And now they've got a passion for God like, like, like nobody's business. They're just truly passionate. They're just on fire for God. And that's what happened to Paul. As on fire as he was against the church, now he's on fire for the church. That's what the word dioko means. It means just that pursuing diligently, going after with all of your heart and energy and soul until you get it. That's the persistence of pursuit. And this is what Christ is saying. Blessed are those. Blessed are those. Those who go after righteousness, who hunger and thirst with a passion for it. And then here's the promise of perfection. When I say perfection, I mean completion, maturity. Because none of us will ever be perfect in this life. And the promise of perfection is that they shall be felt. There's a promise. God's not a disappointment. If God tells us, if you passionately pursue me, if you seek my face, if you draw near to me, I promise you, you will be felt. I'll meet you. You'll experience me in a fresh way. And that's my heart. That's my passion right now. I've been saved 30 something plus years. I've been in God's work 30 plus something years and all of that. And I'm saying to God, God, I want all of my passion back. Because sometimes in ministry, it can suck the very life out of you if you're not careful. You're looking at me as if you're not too sure about that. Well, you'll, you'll be in it. You know what I'm talking about. 
It can suck the very life out of you if you're not careful. And so you need that passion, you need that energy, you need that spiritual charge. And the only way to get it is to spend time with Him. It's the only way it's going to come. Spend time with Him, spend time in His Word. And this is why I'm being challenged, and I'm challenging you as a congregation, as a people, as a pastor. We need to get our passion and our drive and our spiritual energy back to the place, perhaps that it used to be in times past. Now I've had some wonderful times, but I'm looking for better days. I'm not looking back and saying, I just want to get what, what I, I want. To, I got more than ever. I'm more mature now than I've ever been. So I should be able to handle things a lot better, and so should you because you're on the road a while longer. If anything, our desire should be greater than it's ever been. But sometimes you just have to take stock, haven't you? You have to take spiritual inventory. You have to say, well, where am I today? Where am I today? And so, just maybe one more scripture. Second Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 2. Paul's saying in verse 22, he says, Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness. You say, well, hold a minute. I thought, I thought I had righteousness. I thought I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. Yes, you are. But the outworking of that, all of that, all the implications of that, but pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Avoid ignorant disputes, knowing they gender strife. A lot of rubbish and nonsense. Avoid it. Get centered on Christ. Make Him the object of your desire. And so here we see this hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And Jesus said, if you do that, He says, I'll make you a promise. You shall be filled. Shall be filled. I'm seeking the Lord with a fresh passion. And I'm encouraging you to seek the Lord with a fresh desire too. That we may know His will and His purpose for our lives and for the ministry and for this nation and for whatever He wants. And that we're in tune with Him. We're on track. We're not lagging behind. That we're just following him step by step and to know that you're in the perfect will of God. There's nothing like it to know that. Are you with me in it? Yeah. All right. So we've only, what, seven days to go, Cliff? Seven days to go. So this week, more prayer, a little bit of fasting, coupled with our prayer. And we're looking for God to do this year great things. Great things. And we believe that he will. Amen. Let's stand together, please.